0: dive into the whole and its parts. In desiring machines, everything functions at the same time, but amid hiatuses and ruptures, breakdowns and failures, stalling and short circuits, distances and fragmentations, within a sum that never succeeds in bringing its various parts together so as to form a whole. That is because the breaks in the process are productive and are reassemblies in and of themselves. Disjunctions, by the very fact that they are disjunctions are inclusive. Even consumptions are transitions, processes of becoming and returns. Maurice Blanchot has found a way to pose the problem in the most rigorous terms, at the level of the literary machine. How to produce, how to think about fragments whose sole relationship is sheer difference, fragments that are related to one another only in that each of them is different, without having recourse either to any sort of original totality not even one that has been lost, or to a subsequent totality that may not yet have come about? It is only the category of multiplicity used as substantive and going beyond both the one and the many, beyond the predictive relation of the one and the many that can account for desiring production. Desiring production is pure multiplicity, that is to say, an affirmation that is irreducible to any sort of unity. This is a Great way to start this off, and uh, it we start off uh, it it goes right to one of the wonderful terms you probably heard in relation to Deleuze, which is multiplicity, and this is the first mention of it in the book. Uh, the The setup here is we're talking about the nature of all of those desiring machines, and when we were talking about them through that first, uh, in that one point two, well, really throughout this entire chapter. Uh, I kept saying things like it's this mass, this huge number, this this you know massive number of them that are happening and impeding on each other. the The word for that is that they are a multiplicity. It means that they aren't necessarily a singular. They aren't a unity, whole. It's not, uh, you know, a, a, a big collection of uh, you know cells in the human body. Altogether, together is a multiplicity that makes a human. That's not really what we're talking about here. Uh, the The phrasing that they say very, very specifically is at the end there. It's an affirmation of the totality that is irreducible to any semblance of unity. It's a really important distinction beyond the idea of just being a lot of a thing, which is not what multiplicity is.
1: Yes, and it's <clears throat> sorry, and it's also they 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 talk about the functions of the Zaring machine, so they offer some kind of definition also, and they link uh, the machine to the multiplicity, and then, you know, how they function through uh, disjunction, you know, how uh, they allow for the difference to express itself and how things are happening through this uh, this differentiation. So there's, in this little paragraph, there's a lot that helps conceptually to understand um, the link between the different concepts that they use. So I think it's really important for, you know, to take notes here and um, you know, go go and try to map the conceptual assemblage that they have. You know, and when they say "desiring machine," later in their work, they will talk about assemblages instead of this. So it makes sense. You know, an affirmation that is irreducible to a sort of unity. So we're not talking about totalities anymore. We're talking about an assemblage of assemblages.
0: Yeah, and their their use of Blanchot here, uh, which again I'm sure I'm anglicizing, uh, the. Uh... The way Blanchot wrote and all of the work that I've read and the, what what uh, what, what he's kind of known for is this sort of very odd way of combining all of the work into some sort of larger paradox. The way that things talk about are sort of semi nonsensical, but it's a use of language that was extremely novel at the time to quote from uh, Wikipedia, which I think just nails it. Uh, For Blanchot, in the everyday use of language, words are vehicles of ideas. The word flower means flower. that refers to flowers in the world. No doubt it is possible to read literature this way, but literature is more than this everyday use of language. For in literature, flower does not just mean flower, but many things. And it can only do so because the word is independent from what it signifies. This independence, which is passed over in everyday use of language, is the negativity at the heart of language. Uh, Everything that uh, he wrote about the way that he wrote was very much about playing with this multiplicity of concepts behind any specific idea and writing towards them. Uh, really, really unique way of talking through a whole bunch of different things. I, I would highly recommend a handful of uh, his works. I can post a little bit later, but it's if, you've, if you like Kafka, it's, it's very much, uh, I don't want to say in the same line, but it's around that point of kind of the, the absurdity of uh, life and interaction. Really well written. But uh, that's the, the, his literature, literary theory is what they're referencing there when they say uh, Blanchot has found a way to pose the problem in the most rigorous terms at the level of the literary machine, the book, how to produce, how to think about fragments whose sole relationship is sheer difference, fragments that are related to one another only in that each of them is different without having recourse to any larger totality or to a subsequent totality that may not yet have come about. Uh, This is where we're talking about the difference in the way of desiring machines, the whole and its parts.
2: I have a quick question about the one, because they capitalize it, and I wonder if they make a reference to some other person talking about the one?
1: Um, the one, it's to be understood in that manner, is to be understood in the Spinozist sense, you know, as, and then, you know, you will have Guattari talking about the chaosmosis later on, you know, it's the original chaos where, you know, it's the, the univocal, the university of uh, being, and then it differentiates itself into, you know, partial objects or you know, human beings or whatever else, but it's, it's it starts with um this this idea it's a different idea of being because you know there's the um, universe university at at one side and the i don't know what to say that in english it i think so there's their whole differentiation into their understanding of being and they side with spinoza on on this so the one is like you know this 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 old plane of immanence that everything arises from through a form of differentiation or disjunction.
0: Yeah, if one being capitalized here should just be thought of like the the extraordinary singular, the 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 idea of the extraordinary singular, the the thing that exists on its own, the one and the many, uh, beyond the pred- predicative relation of the one and the many that can account for desiring production, then the one there is how I read it at least.
1: Did that make any sense to you? because <laughs> you know the explanation yeah. versus the understanding sometimes i,
2: d- I do kind of get it if 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 you refer to it as like the, the the whole plane of imminence or something
0: and the other part here that's important is is the first sentence because as we get through this and as if you if you joined us yesterday and you were hearing us talk about the breaks in desiring machines the flows the problems the way that they were broken and fucked up uh that's what they start with they're like look in desiring machines everything functions at the same time there are hiatuses, there are ruptures, there's breaks, there's times when it stops and starts, it stalls, short circuits. uh, And all of that, all the breaks are ultimately still productive. There is no moment that's like, oh, this broke, therefore everything stops and becomes, you know, it's like, no, this is continuously a positive process, even with those breaks and those issues. Uh, So it's a... Again, them re- restating sort of the nature of this productive machinic unconscious, uh, yeah.
1: and then they they restate something you know when they uh, they talk about the fragments of uh, of the text on the phenomenology of Maurice Blanchot and uh, there's no totality prior and there's no totality after, so it it's 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 an attempt to actually move out of the structuralist idea. That you know, this old totalities are producing the real or the real is producing those totalities. We're always into desiring machine and assemblages. So it's always open systems uh, that cannot be reduced to a specific identity because they are processual and they're always happening. So it's it's a really different way of understanding, you know, reality and the world. Uh, and re- replacing those forms of totality. We're not talking about like society anymore. You know, we're talking about like a processual um, set of machine that produces a society as a metastable entity, but it's always changing. You know, it's never, we can we can snapshot it, but it's, you know, the snapshot never represent what it is really.
0: Because it's ultimately always a process of becoming. To that end, I will continue the next paragraph. We live today in the age of partial objects, bricks that have been shattered to bits and leftovers. We no longer believe in the myth of the existence of fragments that, like pieces of an antique statue, are merely waiting for the last one to be turned up so that they may all be glued back together to create a unity that is precisely the same as the original unity. We no longer believe in a primordial totality that once existed or in a final totality that awaits us at some future date. We no longer believe in the dull gray outlines of a dreary, colorless dialectic of evolution, aimed at forming a harmonious whole out of heterogeneous bits by rounding off their rough edges. We believe only in totalities that are peripheral. And if we discover such a totality alongside various separate parts, it is a whole of these particular parts, but does not totalize them. It is a unity of all of these particular parts but does not unify them. Rather, it is added to them as a new part fabricated separately.
1: So they ideologically, they state uh, more clearly what we just talked about. You know, they affirm it. You know, we no longer believe, you know, it's it's not like it, it, they take a stance here. So I think it's important to understand the, the stance that they take to uh, read the rest of their uh, their writings because it gives a it gives a tonality, it gives a tone to uh, and uh, you know it, it it opens the way for what's going to come into this book.
0: yeah, and it's uh there's a handful of uh, slight condemnations of some other philosophical theories that were sort of flying around and continue to uh, that they kind of take on very quickly here. again, uh, like Roger said, this this paragraph is about them sort of putting their stake in the ground saying, this is what we're not. This is not how things work. We're going in a different direction, and this is where they start breaking off of that sort of uh, ongoing, classic, I would say, even Hegelian dialectic concept that the left yeah. has constantly been in.
1: That's that's where I was adding, and it's it's Hegel, and on one side, you know, on the 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 idea of like thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis, and like our history is like following this linear kind of progression towards you know a more I would say like perfect kind of form but also it's the it we're into the post-war you know era so basically after the post-war you get like like people like francis fukuyama said like you know that it was the last man and you know the last chapter of history because everything will become democratic and nothing will move from this and i think that they were they were Understanding that this was not the case, that this old idea of progress and, you know, human rights and and, and all that thing that was going on with, like, you know, the glorious years of capitalist production of the 70s and like 60s, 70s, uh, that they were hiding something else, you know. So this old linearity and, you know, there was a lot of like evolutionary thesis within social sciences. uh, uh, i think they were criticizing this saying that you know it, it doesn't it it's not going that way it's going to be a little bit different and uh, so yeah they're taking another stance to see history also evolve
0: yeah and that that last line uh frogtown asks is the last line generalizing primordial and final totalities or is it talking about something new uh it's to me how i read it is that it's talking about how uh we view totalities now and how actually they they begin to talk about this march forward instead of saying that oh no it's not we're moving not towards some evolutionary point where everything is grand and in harmony but instead as totalities are introduced and created which seems to be the case uh it's it's not so much that oh we have this larger overall totality but it's that we integrate that into sort of this unity and like a sedimentary layer on top of all the other parts that are sort of waiting um, it's it's a new part fabricated separately that is introduced and added to the giant aluminum foil ball that is all the bullshit we deal with, but it's not you know towards some larger thing. At least that's how I read that last sentence.
1: Yeah, and this is going to you know I'm going outside of the text for just one second. Yan uh, Buchanan just put out a book called Assemblage Methods Methodologies lately, and he was identifying. Um, uh, the perspective that Delanda has about assemblages, you know, assemblages is desiring machine. It's just being reconceptualized a little bit later on in their writing. Um, and th- this this phrase, I can see now where why people are, you know, seeing assemblages as something that you can add parts and retract parts. And that's the old criticism that Jan Buchanan was having of saying that this is not what Deleuze and Guattari said in the first place. But I see because of ints like this in the text, and that's how I worked uh, on cities also, because I've, I've taken this idea. And now I see that, you know, because of this criticism that I'm a little bit wrong. And that's why I'm pointing it out right now. So it can lead you into understanding that desiring machine, you know, it's something, it's like an assemblage that keeps connecting and, you know, making bigger assemblages. Uh, it makes sense, but, you know, there's going to be uh, the 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 conceptualization of their work is going to be a little bit different later on. So I just wanted to point this
0: yep. out. Awesome. Um, I'm going to continue to the next paragraph. Uh, it's a little bit longer. It comes into being, but applying this time to the whole is some inspired fragment composed separately. So Proust writes of the unity of Balzac's creation through his remark, though his remark is also an apt description of his own au revoir. In the literary machine that Proust's In Search of Lost Time constitutes, We are struck by the fact that all the parts are produced as asymmetrical sections, paths that suddenly come to an end, hermetically sealed boxes, non-communicating vessels, watertight compartments, in which there are gaps even between the things that are contiguous, gaps that are affirmations, pieces of puzzle belonging not to any one puzzle but to many pieces, assembled by forcing them into into a certain place where they may or may not belong their unmatched edges violently bent out of shape, forcibly made to fit together, to interlock, with a number of pieces always left over. It is the schizoid work par excellence. It is almost as though the author's guilt, his confessions of guilt, are merely a sort of joke. In Kleinian terms, it might be said that the depressive position is only a cover-up for a more deeply rooted schizoid attitude." for the rigors of the law are only an apparent expression of the protest of the one, whereas their real object is the absolution of fragmented universes, in which the law never unites anything in a single whole, but on the contrary measures and maps out the divergences, the dispersions, the exploding into fragments of something that is innocent, precisely because its source is madness. This is why Proust's work, the apparent theme of guilt is tightly interwoven with a completely different theme totally contradicting it. The plant-like innocence that results from the total compartmentalization of the sexes, both in Charlus' encounters and in Albertine's slumber, where flowers blossom in profusion and the utter innocence of madness is revealed, whether it be the patent madness of Charlus or the supposed madness of Albertine and anyone, I again make fun of how I pronounce anything in French perfectly fine, it's the way it works uh, it's, it's, how, how, how do you say it? au Is it?
3: oeuvre
4: it's oh. oeuvre.
0: Yeah. oeuvre whatever, god damn French words, sorry I'm American we barely do American um, so uh, if you haven't read In Search of Lost Time uh, this paragraph will be a difficult one <laughs> the 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 challenge with uh, In Search of Lost Time when you're reading it is that, uh, I mean, it's again, uh, now something that is more commonly done. The idea of the threads of stories that seemingly end and don't intertwine, intertwine directly, but uh, have some sort of uh, way that you as the viewer are able to put them together is essentially why In Search of Lost Time is extraordinary to read. Uh It is a larger sum of a lot of stories that aren't necessarily stories you could point out and say, well, this is how this connects to that. This is the hero's journey in Star Wars, and here's how everything relates back to this main thread. Really difficult to do that with In Search of Lost Time in a meaningful way. It's a lot of disjointed stories that, albeit that being the case, absolutely works as a whole. And it's difficult to describe why. Um. I'm going to avoid talking too much down this road because I just finished, uh, I'm halfway through rereading In Search of Lost Time as I've I've just finished uh, Proust and Signs uh, by Deleuze. So try not to bring up too much from there, but uh, this book is incredibly important to Deleuze and his uh, sort of semiotics and theory of how things work regardless.
2: Two Uh, two questions here. Um, The first one is when they say law, do they mean like literal uh, laws in law books or more of a general idea of law? And second one uh, related to that, what, what, what do they mean with madness exactly here?
0: So for law, uh, how I read it is that they're talking about just the general law, the Uh, the thing that ties society together, the rigors of the law are only an apparent expression of the protest of the one, whereas their real object is the absolution of fragmented universes, Uh, all of our different stories uh, sort of combined, in which the law never unites anything in a single whole, but on the contrary measures and maps out divergences between all of our life experiences that happen underneath it, uh, is how I read that sentence, and I think points towards a larger point they're also trying to make here the other question that's a very good question well if if i was pushed into an answer uh, i would say when they talk about madness here they're talking about it in terms of uh, again from in search of lost time and how uh, such things are sort of discussed they don't necessarily mean you know true mental illness or anything like that but that there is uh rather than coming from a place of totality which is what is assumed by the law and by authority figures in this this book and by many others in literature. The assumed totality of everything is where things tend to be ascribed and come from. The hero's journey is actually a perfect example of this. If you go back through history, uh, they are all the story of the same person uh, if you haven't read the the book, The Hero's Journey, it's wonderful. But it's this you know lowly guy who makes his way up, has his trials. This is the rules for how the great story happens. But it always happens against and within the law, uh, and within kind of this cohesive totality. His discussion here is uh, the 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 reality is the desires, the the exploded fragments of things the divergences, the dispersions, the differences between us that the law is pretending or acts like it is controlling and uniting are all scattered from madness. And I think they're speaking more uh, from a poetic standpoint in the sense of that it comes from this place of total chaos. Their desiring machines, again, have no goal. They don't know totality. They don't even know whole objects. So the the innocence, uh, the source, and the fragments of these things that it's coming from is this purity of madness. This this place, and in Proust's work, the the way that this plays through through not only the the sort of handful of characters he mentions here, uh, but it's them talking through kind of their own. I don't know how to put it. Them revealing their desiring machines in a very vulnerable, interesting way as you make your way through the book is, I think, one interpretation that would not be terrible. Uh, and so it's their, irregard, uh, their step aside from the law and their way of not really giving a shit about it because they're dealing with the patent menace of, Sh- of Charlus. Again, sorry, I'm pr- pronouncing things the way I do, um, and uh, Albertine's. Sort of supposed madness and slumber, which I don't want to get too much into the story of all of this, but uh, their madness here is not madness, like, oh, we need to put them in a home, and they're they're fucking losing their shit and they need to be on meds, uh, sort of, but much more in the uh, inability for them to deal with what would be considered the way that life ought to be the law, if that makes sense,
2: so they're specifically using using it subversive again, like they use other conditions as well. I,
0: I think so.
1: You know, let's 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 take a little step back. Um, you know, there's uh the law for them is like the abstract, you know, it's uh it's a form of totalization, but it's 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 not something that is really out there. It it becomes out there It's like the idea of God, whether you believe in it or not. Uh the moment somebody believes in it, God comes into the play because you know it it, it, it has an effect. So the law has this effect, but it's the abstract, moralizing kind of overcoding that is being there, done there but i don't know i don't think they think they talk about it into uh, anti oedipus but it's about the idea of jurisprudence the reality of the law is the jurisprudence because the jurisprudence actually operates into uh, the real and you know it 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 institut- institutionalized lines of flight or lines of becoming or molecular becomings it crystallized them into uh what becomes the law after. So like, there's always those two levels. So there's the, the molar level and the molecular, but the, the law would be at the more molar level, the, the jurisprudence would be more at the molecular. So that's why they make this distinction. I don't think it's clear in the text at this moment, but they do it elsewhere. So.
0: And, and again, the, the characters that he's discussing, um, when he talks about madness, he's talking about, and it's, it's hard for me to say, because it's, I, I'm trying to be, I don't know how to talk about these things. Uh, in the madness they talk about is like lesbianism, obsessive love, uh, sex, and kind of overindulgence of things. There's a, the, the characters and the people that kind of interact and how they sort of interplay, when they talk about madness, they're talking about a, a versus the law, versus the expected norms of society, not versus uh, like what we would say is like in the DSM like some psychological conditions. So it's a little bit more of a subversive way, but their their play here is towards that.
1: But if we take the DSM as a cultural or, you know, civilis- civilizational index of mental illnesses, it maps what is considered to be the normal and the pathological. The normal is being the molar and the pathological is the becoming that is still not coded or, you know, doesn't, find a place within society so it it could still make sense in that
0: manner Uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue because it continues about Proust Uh, hence Proust maintained that the whole itself is a product produced as nothing more than a part alongside other parts which it neither unifies nor totalizes even though it it has an effect on these other parts simply because it establishes aberrant paths of communication between non-communicating vessels, transverse unities between elements that retain all their differences within their own particular boundaries. Thus, in the trip on the train in, in search of lost time, there is never a totality of what is seen nor a unity of the points of view, except along the traversal that the frantic passenger traces from one window to the other in order to draw together, in order to reweave intermittent and opposite fragments. This drawing together, this reweaving, what Joyce called re-embodying, the body without organs is produced as a whole, but in its own particular place within the process of production, alongside the parts that it neither unifies nor totalizes. And when it operates on them, when it turns back upon them, say Robert sur I'm not even gonna try, it brings about transverse communications transfinite summarizations, polyvocal and transcursive inscriptions on its own surface, on which the functional breaks of partial objects are continually intersected by breaks in the signifying chains, and breaks affected by a subject that uses them as reference points in order to locate itself. The whole not only coexists with all the parts, it is contiguous to them, it exists as a product that is produced apart from them, yet at the same time is related to them geneticists have noted that the same phenomenon in the particular language of their science, quote, amino acids are assimilated individually into the cell, and then are arranged in the proper sequence by a mechanism analogous to a template onto which the distinctive side chain of each acid keys into its proper position, end quote. As a general rule, the problem of the relationship between parts and the whole continues to be rather awkwardly formulated by classic mechanism and vitalism, so long as the whole is considered as a totality derived from the parts, or as an original totality from which the parts emanate, or as a dialectical totalization. Neither mechanism nor vitalism has really understood the nature of desiring machines, nor the twofold need to consider the role of production in desire and the role of desire in mechanics. I I would like to use an analog for this that I think, uh, if, if anyone here is actually pretty active on the server uh, should work for you. Uh, our server would be a, our, our discord server would actually be a phenomenal example of this. Uh, we have uh, 12 to 14 readings going on any given week of all sorts of different authors. Uh, they happen, people move between them, but there's not the same person leading them. They're quite unique. They're all different readings. We have even Heidegger on a server with Deleuze, which is not normal. Uh, I would say, uh, we have some really interesting sort of science readings, other stuff. Now, Each one of these in itself is a part. Let's talk about it like that. At the same time, the server existing and containing all of these things consider it a part that informs the fact that these other parts are part of it. But it's not that this is all now one giant server that has come together. It's not really how we function as a server. In fact, it's not how most servers that have this complex of a layout function. In fact, they're actually a giant grouping of parts but the, the whole, the thing that they are called, is also another part that informs those parts. Uh, this is what they're talking about also with In Search of Lost Time. The stories themselves are not something that if you read them all separately out of context, you would not relate them in your head. Uh, I, I believe almost at all. It, I mean, they're in France. You'd be like, oh, it's all oh, books about Paris or something. But like, as far as like the themes or the stories, you absolutely wouldn't do that. However, by placing all of these books, uh, these writings, inside of a series of books calling them a thing and then putting them inside of this hole, it's actually informed. And given this, uh, I, I believe it's more of like a, a Deleuze and Guadagni may call it a diagrammatic quality, uh, the totality informs that there is something between them and now we can start putting something there. But it's not so much that they are a whole, it's that the whole also is a set of parts alongside the other parts. This was my attempt to explain it.
1: Yeah, I think it makes sense. And if we can add to this, you know, there was no genetic code to the server when we started it. It was just a bunch of people, you know, kind of like finding themselves alone at the beginning of the pandemic and we decided to do a reading together. But there was no genetic code that, you know, the server evolved from. It was more like a, you know, genealogy of like different branching, something working, something not and there's no destination to this server it's an ongoing process that keeps producing it produces a spark it produces it, its reproduction condition but we, it's only true time you know maybe like 5 years somebody will get interested into the server and there's the risk of like essentializing an intent or e- essentializing a moment in time to see the serv- the server as something planned and really taught of, which is not, it's being taught as we go. So I think you know that's, uh, that's the other part of their criticism.
0: So one of the things that's important here is when we talk about this, just like the beginning of this, it is about understanding the whole and its parts. The sentence here I really like is as a general rule, the problem of the relationships between parts and the whole continues to be awkwardly formulated by classic mechanism and vitalism. Uh, uh, even in a biological sense where is it where is your body where are your organs which is which how do things work is, is it a whole is it parts it's it's operated from a very specific phylum bio classical mentality and they're saying no it's the part and the holes are actually all giant things that affect the way that they are perceived taken in uh, sensed essentially it's a really, uh, important thing as we get going, especially when we start talking about, you know, the history of the erstat, the ethnology, the uh, all of that, understanding how society works. It's not about society, it's about the whole and its parts. Uh, but I will move to the next uh, paragraph. There is no sort of evolution of drives that would cause these drives and their objects to progress in the direction of an integrated whole any more than there is an original totality from which they can be derived. Melanie Klein was responsible for the marvelous discovery of partial objects, that world of explosions, rotations, vibrations. But how can we explain the fact that she has nonetheless failed to grasp the logic of these objects? It is is doubtless because, first of all, she conceives of them as fantasies and judges them from the point of view of consumption rather than regarding them as genuine production, She explains them in terms of causal mechanisms, introjection and projection, for instance, of mechanisms that produce certain effects, gratification and frustration, and of mechanisms of expression, good and bad, an approach that forces her to adopt an idealist conception of the partial object. She does not relate these partial objects to a real process of production, of the sort carried out by desiring machines, for instance, in the second place, she cannot rid herself of the notion that schizoparanoid partial objects are related to a whole, either to an original whole that has existed earlier in the primary phase, or to a whole that will eventually appear in a final depressive stage, the complete object. Partial objects hence appear to her to be derived from global persons. Not only are they destined to play a role in totalities aimed at integrating the ego, the object, and drives later in life, but they also constitute the original type of object relation between the ego, the mother, and the father. And in the final analysis, that is where the crux of the matter lies. Partial objects unquestionably have a sufficient charge in and of themselves to blow up all of Oedipus and totally demolish its ridiculous claim to represent the unconscious, to triangulate the unconscious, to encompass the entire production of desire. The question that thus arises here is not at all that of the relative importance of what might be called the pre edible in relation to Oedipus itself, since pre edipal still has a developmental or structural relationship to Oedipus. The question, rather, is that of the absolutely an nature of the production of desire. But because Melanie Klein insists on considering desire from the point of view of the whole, of global persons and of complete objects. And also perhaps because she is eager to avoid any sort of temp What is that word? My PDF has contretemps. Is that a thing? Real quick. I'm sorry to stop. Does anyone want to translate for me? Because that's weird that they left that word in here.
2: <laughs> Literally, it means against time. But, uh, you know, that's where the translation ends. Because she is a... Go ahead, Raj
1: well something you know easy in music you know uh, it's like a counter time in music when you're playing. Uh,
0: going against the flow fair enough um because she is eager to avoid any sort of uh, uh, uh going again with the psycho with the international psychoanalytic association that bears above the door of the inscription let no one enter here who does not believe in oedipus she does not make use of partial objects to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus. On the contrary, she uses them, or makes a pretense of using them, to water Oedipus down, miniaturize it, to find it everywhere, and to extend the very earliest years of life. That's a hell of a critique of Melanie Klein. She she won't push against the people she belongs to, because they absolutely demand that you know and believe in Oedipus. So that's, a, thank you, uh, Boastgerd. Great. Uh, going against the flow of the psychoanalytic institutions. So, here they take on a handful of points that we can actually get through fairly quickly, despite this seeming like a pretty complicated uh, thing. Uh, the, the first point that they make is uh, she does understand the concept of partial objects, or, like, look, the, these, these evolutions have started to be made. The problem is that partial objects are seen essentially as having been predetermined either from where they came from or what they will be where all partial objects came from in her book is essentially from mommy, daddy, me, and where they're all going is onto global persons as well. Uh, Not mommy, daddy, me directly, but that these partial objects will be laid upon the president, the law, my boss, my girlfriend, my son, uh, the tree outdoor, I don't know, all kinds of shit. So the issue is not so much the the misidentification of partial objects, but that it doesn't understand that actually they, they don't, derive from some larger idea that they come from desiring machines purely uh that they're they're not caused these partial objects aren't caused by a thing these are just the way desiring objects exist and how they desiring uh machines exist and how they interact is how i read the first one
1: sorry i was onto something else sorry
0: not a problem uh if anyone disagrees jump in if anyone has uh, other thoughts that's how i read that first one that it's we can't start by saying good or bad. This is gratification or frustration. This is every time we talk to someone and someone says, uh, we talk about desiring machines early on, you'll remember a lot of people said, hey, so what is that thing that's recorded? We were even have this conversation today. What is the sign? Is it good, bad? What is, what is the consummation, the consumption? And it's like, it's not these effects that are produced. It's not gratification or frustration. It's not good or bad. It's not all of these things that are created in that process. It's a sense of, some of these things, but it's not either or, and it's, it's really not directly causal and mechanisms of direct expression themselves, that it's these partial objects that they exist sort of as signs.
3: Remke has a good question. Uh, what is meant with schizoparanoid partial object as opposed to just saying schizoid partial object or just partial object?
0: That's a really great question. It's also the only time the word schizoparanoid is used in the entire book, so that becomes trouble. Um, I will have to uh, dive in and find that for you, Remke. Um, I have guesses, but I'm my guess, my assumption here is that specifically because Melanie Klein is dealing with people who are mentally ill and they're partial objects and relating them to Oedipus, that everything she deals with is specifically something that she has pre-assigned schizoparanoid, all of the partial objects necessarily are schizoparanoid because they're not part of a global person in Melanie Klein's sort of psychoanalytic tradition. Not positive there, but that is how I understand that sentence. And this is the second place, it She cannot help but have this notion that these partial objects that are uh, schizoparanoid are related to whole, either original whole or after whole, these global persons, as I was just saying. So not only are partial objects not sort of conditional and coming out of some very specific gratification or frustration only they're just produced kind of constantly. The second part is these are not schizoparanoid partial objects. She sees them all as that because by nature, partial objects are only those thrown off in the psychoanalytic tradition from when you aren't edipalized, when you don't have, uh, uh, when you haven't attached something properly to the father or mother me triangle. That would be a schizoparanoid partial object. Does that make sense, Remke? That's my thinking. I'm have to. i going to have to dig into it. It's a great question. But that's kind of how I'm reading that. And so, like, when they go in, um, partial objects hence appear only to be derived from global persons, uh, mommy, daddy, me. Not only are they destined to play a role in totalities aimed at integrating the ego, the object and drives in later life but they also constitute the original type of object relation between the ego, the mother, and the father. So it's partial objects only exist kind of between these uh, two places, and uh, they only exist when they aren't sort of laid in uh, properly.
2: I have a question, but maybe this is something that we'll get at a later chapter, so maybe you can just postpone the question. But it has to do with um, marrying the idea of the pre-subject uh, world of partial objects and desires, marrying that with our post-subject or, or subjective experience of things as a whole—do they ever get into that? In the sense that our subjective experience feels extremely real to us.
0: So they—they um, they sort of already have, and it's a tough—it's the tough part about this to start of wrap my head around that I've only kind of really started to grasp a lot of is when they talk about all of this, the, the pre-subject, uh, versus say the the subject existing or post-subject, let's say there's a line and uh, we're talking about, uh, things before me and things after me kind of, if we want to just say that everything's in relation to that, uh, from my subjective perspective, um, the, the things before are imminent. They're, they're literal things happening in the moment that are creating, why I'm saying the words I'm doing that are doing these things. Now, the post-subject is simply the moment where I've said these things and I've pretended or I've been fooled into or I'm taking advantage of the fact that these things are happening imminently in order to pretend that I exist and I did them and to assign that those desires to myself. So it's not so much that uh, things are partial objects and then suddenly they aren't post-subject. Things are still partial objects. The body without organ is still covered in signs and partial objects me as the subject uh, i have assigned them to global or i have given them that in my uh, as you may have heard the discussion we were having yesterday uh, jack would say uh, that's like in the pre-conscious these sort of interests and things begin to form and in those moments i have my investments my molar investments my global conceptions and things like that that also have a lot of issues but that It's not so much that at any point they get transformed from partial objects to not. Everything is partial objects. Everything is desiring machines. We're now just talking about the relationship between this mass, this multiplicity of all of these desiring machines and the partial objects that they're connecting with. So at at any point, if I were to say, uh, my hand is a bunch of partial objects connecting with my keyboard, I've totalized them by saying my hand and keyboard, but at no point is that any way the reality? There's still a million desiring machines and partial objects that are interacting and doing those things. These are the words I'm using to describe those things, which seems to totalize it. But those desiring machines are nonetheless still there. They aren't totalized. And in fact, me calling it my hand adds a shit ton of flavor to the thing uh, that sits alongside the desiring machines as well as a name that you call something in order to add context to the sum of its parts.
2: In in a way, I don't know if, if you agree with this, but in a way, it slightly feels a little bit disingenuous to Melanie, Melanie Klein because maybe uh, she would just say that, sure, partial objects are all cool and stuff, and of course they're, they're the more important part, but that's just not what I'm interested in. In a sense that you can still genuinely um, research uh, the post-subject global objects as something worth looking into, right?
0: Well, so so the answer would be yes, you can. The The challenge is where you think that these partial objects come from. And Melanie Klein and psychoanalytic sort of theory in general places them as having an impetus that already shapes them. Uh, Pre-Oedipal is a very specific structure, as they say, that is wholly in relationship to the Oedipal. There is no other option there. Uh, Desiring machines or partial objects don't come from anything else. Uh, And that's, I think, their big critique there is saying, look, if you say you're looking at partial objects, that's great. The problem is you're saying that they are partial objects in relation to mommy, daddy, me originally, and that they need to become mommy, daddy, me at some point. So you're, you're most of the way there, but you're also really starting in a place that forces you into this very narrow trench of being an, an Oedipus person and and forcing a patient to be Oedipalized. Um, and as, as Ben says, the global objects uh, as a thing are the totality they're saying doesn't actually exist as a thing, that it is another part of all of the parts, but it is not actually a thing. And that's the, the other part that they say as a critique when they go to mother, father, daddy, mommy, me, that those are global objects. Those are full totalities that simply do not exist. They absolutely don't. And they are, uh, I would think they later would go on to say that they're some kind of delirium and they're the cause of a whole shitload of problems that generate social repression and then psychic repression from that.
3: Yeah, Melanie Klein's uh, object relations is like completely edible.
0: Yeah, she's she's super Oedipal. So like, uh, yeah, PT. It's actually a really good point to bring up. Where Melanie Klein, they mentioned her earlier. and I don't know if we've gone deep. And we we did a, a reading of her uh, early in the service history. Um, she's not kind of Oedipalized. This isn't like Lacan where it's like, hey, sort of, I'm gonna play with the phallus and I'm kind of dancing. It's like, no, this is she's this is her thing. And uh, they I mean, they're they're kind of dig at her at the very end. Here is like, hey. There's actually a good chance she doesn't really, like, want to go this direction, but she kind of has to because that's the nature of her business, her, her livelihood, her social structures, and all those things that encourage it as well. If we choose the example of the analyst least prone to see everything in terms of Oedipus, we do so only in order to demonstrate what a forcing was necessary for her to make Oedipus the sole measure of desiring production referring to Melanie Klein here. And naturally, this is all the more true in the case of -of run-of-the-mill practitioners who no longer have the slightest notion of what the psychoanalytic movement is all about. It is no longer a question of suggestion, but of sheer terrorism. Melanie Klein herself writes, the first time Dick came to me, he manifested no sort of effect when his nurse handed him over to me. When I showed him the toys I had put ready, he looked at them without the faintest interest. I took a big train and put it beside a smaller one, and called them Daddy Train and Dick Train. Thereupon he picked up the train I called Dick, and made it roll to the window and said, Station. I explained. The station is Mummy. Dick is going into Mummy. He left the train, ran into the space between the outer and inner doors of the room, shutting himself in, saying, Dark, and ran out again directly. He went through this performance several times. I explained to him, It is dark inside mummy. Dick is inside dark mummy. Meantime, he picked up the train again, but soon ran back into the space between the doors. While I was saying that he was going into dark mummy, he said twice in a questioning way, Nurse? As his analysis progressed, Dick had also discovered the wash basin as symbolizing the mother's body, and he displayed an extraordinary dread of being wetted with water. End quote. Say that it's Oedipus or you'll get a slap in the face. The psychoanalyst no longer says to the patient, tell me a little bit about your desiring machines, won't you? Instead he screams, answer daddy mommy when I speak to you. Even Melanie Klein. So the entire process of desiring production is trampled underfoot and reduced to, said Robert Sir, parental images laid out step by step in accordance with supposed pre-Oedipal stages, totalized in Oedipus and the logic of partial objects is thereby reduced to nothing. Oedipus thus becomes, at this point, the crucial premise in the logic of psychoanalysis, for, as we suspected at the very beginning, partial objects are only apparently derived from global persons. They are really produced by being drawn from a flow, or a non-personal hile, with which they reestablish contact by connecting themselves to other partial objects the unconscious is totally aware of persons as such. Partial objects are not representations of parental figures or of the basic patterns of family relations. They are parts of desiring machines, having to do with a process and with relations of production that are both irreducible and prior to anything that may be made to conform to the Oedipal figure. I'm just going to say one thing quick. That whole thing from Melanie Klein there is so gross to me every time I read it. It's because... The whole point of this paragraph, and again, one of their takedowns of psychoanalysis is like, hey, you started in a great place and you went, hey, wait, let's step back. What is really driving people? And you started breaking things down. That's good shit. And it was about breaking things down. Really good. Keep that, oh no, you're going to stop. And when they refer to the 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 average analyst, the, the kind of asshole out there just doing it is so disconnected from the original intention that all they do now is talk about mommy, daddy, me. This reminds me of, The dozens of all kinds of political movements that start with some grain of uh, some, say, an honorable or an interesting or a revolutionary uh, thing. The reality is uh, once they get to the point where they've been established and they're, you know, 20 years in and they've got some outpost, the dude there with the gun has no idea what that original goal was. He just knows the banner, the flag that he has to die for. And in psychoanalysis, that banner, that flag is Oedipus. They don't give a shit where it starts from. And that's really their big takedown of a lot of this is like, you started great, to keep it going. Um, and yes, that is Melanie Klein. Uh, they, it's it's uh, sourced in the back. Um, it, it does, it reads like parody, but this is, again, the, the line that they come to at the very end there. Uh, Answer daddy, mommy, when I speak to you, say it's Oedipus or you'll get a slap in the face. It's, it's no longer a discussion. It's here is what you need. Here is what you do. Here's what everything you believe really comes down to. You want, like Jesus Christ, fucking train inside of Dark Mommy. Like I just read that and it's like this feels like child abuse so much.
2: <laughs> I hate it. It feels like a, like a, like a South Park scene or something uh, on psychoanalysis.
0: But that's essentially this paragraph is them saying, uh, sort of expanding on and giving a very specific example of what they were talking about before that he's doing all of these things is he's, he's got this train and he, he goes towards mommy. It's like, oh, it's because you want to, you want to fuck your mom. And then the kid's like running around like no nurse. And she's like, oh nurse. Hmm. Yes. So the wash basin is your mother's body and you don't want to be wet with water because that would remind you. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, Melanie, relax a little bit. Like, not everything is mommy Daddy. <laughs> not at all,
1: but I mean, you know, and this this is you know uh, that's a point of contention with the new social movement also, you know, and we can we can bring it to the academic. I'll do the academic first and then the social movements after. you know sometimes when they say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, it sometimes the material object that we're describing is not this symbolic representation uh, that is representing the phallus in any sense, you know. Or the patriarchy, or whatever else. Sometimes it's it's just an object, and that's the thing with new social movements because you know they're so based into um, identity. When well, I'm not saying identity politics, but like the identity of the system or the the totalization. And we make totalization intervene into our mundane discussion about you know real life and real world problems. So that's it's it's a form of criticism that could be used to approach this kind of you know abstract reductionism that we're doing today into our own politics
0: well and and psychoanalysis is still standing now the losing lottery would say that psychoanalysis is still around because it produces itself and it does it exceptionally well and we'll get into how that functions uh that Oedipus is basically you know sort of capitalism junior and really, really helps capitalism. Therefore, they reinforce each other. So, of course, psychoanalysis is still going to be standing. So is capital. So is a whole bunch of other stupid bullshit that we believe that's kind of become self-fulfilling. Uh, if, you, if you scream at someone long enough that everything is mommy, daddy, me, they'll believe you. And eventually you will, in theory, sort of produce a person who is kind of more functional than they were. And you can go, excellent. I did that as I am a good psychoanalyst. Uh, despite the fact that you've, you know, talked about trains with a poor little boy about shoving him into his mom's vagina, like Jesus Christ. Um, so it's, a, yeah, no shit's still around. It's a, it's a weird world. Uh,
2: but I think there's also just two ways of, of looking at things in that sense, right? You can also look at things not to justify their existence, but to, let's say, um make perceptions on things that are there. And in that sense, psychoanalysis still I hate to say, but works in a way. Also when it comes to, for example, um art analysis, because it I mean to, to, to my own personal discuss it discuss it works to describe things that you see, if that makes sense. Oh, oh, no, for sure. Yeah. And, well
1: it's it that that's the thing. It's the it's a coding, you know. It's some it it overcodes reality to actually make equations between symbols, and then you can work on those equations because you know if we say oh you know you you have this this desire as a lack or you know you can take the the delusion perspective you know oh this desire is a surplus and you're just trying to make to express it into this new uh desire like this new assemblage or blah 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 and but like this this type of codification is not the real it's it's something that we use to work because we cannot work on the reality of the process we can use on the symbolic aspect most of the time so it's really comfortable to be having this kind of explanations
0: well and and i think their line here that i really like is almost like them saying uh hey, we, we would be perfectly fine if the psychoanalyst said, tell me a little bit about your desiring machines. But in line with Oedipus, if we were starting there, like Oedipus is not some bullshit thing. It happens. These are problems. It's the, the fact that psychoanalysis is kind of overly obsessed with this triangulation. And again, they'll get into Lacan jumps away from it, does something else unique, but they're like, this is still that triangulation. So uh, we'll, we'll be getting to that. Don't worry. But they don't hate psychoanalysis as such. It's, it's Oedipal. It's the Oedipalization of it. When the break between Freud and Jung is discussed, the modest and practical point of disagreement that marked the beginning of their differences is too often forgotten. Jung remarked that in the process of transference, the psychoanalyst frequently appeared in the guise of a devil, a god, or a sorcerer, and that the roles he assumed in the patient's eyes went far beyond any sort of parental images. They eventually came to a total parting of ways, yet Jung's initial reservation was a telling one. The same remark holds true of a child, children's games. A child never confines himself to playing house, to playing only at being mommy and daddy. He also plays at being a magician, cowboy, cop or robber, train, a little car. The train is not necessarily daddy, nor is the train station mommy. The problem has to do not with the sexual nature of desiring machines, but with the family nature of this sexuality. Admittedly, once the child is grown up, he finds himself deeply involved in social relations that are no longer familial relations. But since these relations supposedly come into being at a later stage in life, there are only two possible ways in which this can be explained. It must be granted either that sexuality is sublimated or neutralized in and through social and metaphysical relations in the form of analytic afterward, or else that these relations bring into play a non-sexual energy for which sexuality has merely served as the symbol of an anagogical beyond Uh, this one i'm going to hope ken or roger is oh did ken leave ken left roger Ben. oh my
1: god i need to say something smart i don't know
0: uh we we, we lost our freaking our fucking youngian left like right before this paragraph god damn it (laughs) like of all the times He's probably he's going to kill himself. he's going to be so mad when he finds out. Like right then, it's like, oh, it's me. Hi, Ken. Um, uh, on
1: on Carl Jung, I cannot really say anything because this is not my field. But when they say uh, this relation supposedly come into being at the later stage in life, so uh, this this um familial uh, relation, you know, they're being essentialized, you know, and then everything that happens later in life needs to be the expression of those um, essential like sexual tensions or pulsions or whatever else. And then uh, into psychoanalysis, they cannot be understood as um, they will be understood as something outside of sexuality because the model sexualizes everything. And, And now you're left with like, you know, something that is happening at oh you know we uh we understood this in terms of sexuality but it was not really so this overcodification of the psychoanalytic uh, model is creating this 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 code for reality and with the moment you know it doesn't find um the, the reality doesn't find a place they say, Oh, well it's outside of the code. So maybe it was a mistake to actually do this or they will try to overcode What doesn't, um, fall within the previous code. I don't know if that right. makes sense.
0: Yeah, no. And, and I want to, uh, Ben has a very good point. We're going to continue right to the next paragraph. I do want to say, this is not them saying, this is our conclusion. This is them giving like, here's how absurd and is either one of these two things must be true if you believe in it, and they're, they don't. Uh, let's continue to the next paragraph. It was their disagreement on this particular point that eventually made the break between Freud and Jung irreconcilable. Yet at the same time, the two of them continued to share the belief that the libido cannot invest a social or metaphysical field without some sort of mediation. This is not the case, however. Let us consider a child at play, or a child crawling, about, exploring various rooms of the house he lives in. He looks intently at an electrical outlet, moves his body about like a machine, uses one of his legs as though it was an oar. Goes into the kitchen, into the study, runs toy cars back and forth. It's obvious his parents are present all this time. The child would have nothing were it not for them. But that is not the real matter at issue. The matter at issue is to find out whether everything he touches is experienced as a representative of his parents. Ever since birth, his crib, his mother's breast, her nipple, his bowel movements are desiring machines connected to parts of his body. It seems to us self-contradictory to maintain, on the one hand, that the child lives among partial objects, and that on the other hand, he conceives of these partial objects as being his parents, or even different parts of his parents' bodies. Strictly speaking, it is not true that a baby experiences his mother's breast as a separate part of her body. It exists, rather, as a part of a desiring machine connected to the baby's mouth and is experienced as an object providing a non-personal flow of milk, be it copious or scant. A desiring machine and a partial object do not represent anything. A partial object is not representative, even though it admittedly serves as a basis of relations and as a means of assigning agents. A place and a function. But these agents are not persons any more than these relations are intersubjective. They are relations of production as such, and agents of production and anti-production. Ray Bradbury demonstrates this very well when he describes the nursery as a place where desiring production and group fantasy occur as a place where the only connection is that between partial objects and agents. The small child lives with his family around the clock, but within the bosom of this family, And from the very first days of his life, he immediately begins having an amazing non-familial experience that psychoanalysis has completely failed to take into account. Lindner's painting attracts our attention once again.
1: Yes. So like to put it into like a layman term, it's like psychoanalysis is colorblind. It codes with the spectrum of colors that it can actually use, but everything that doesn't that it doesn't recognize as a representation false. So basically, you know, it works at the symbolic level, it analyzes the symbols and the relation between symbols, but it cannot take account of the processes, the material processes that happen underneath and that compose the real. So the real machines of production are completely uh, invisible to psychoanalysis.
0: Yes. And uh, the one of the things I love about this paragraph is uh you know they're they're saying that we're going to be looking back at Lindner's painting i i posted it in the chat uh it's it's a really striking piece uh he he's an unfortunate looking kid i guess i would say boastgird. i don't know repulsive he's unfortunate it's unfortunate uh, it's a hell of a body proportion those hands especially but uh what what he's got here is uh, a unique way of looking at how a child plays And from his perspective and the way he's seeing the world is out of whack, out of sorts, uh, machines, toys that we don't grasp and we don't get it because we can't. Uh, We have conceptualized and and gathered so many things over the course of our life. It's impossible to see it from the position of a kid and especially a young child. But like he says in here, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the baby does anything and goes, yes, this is like father is on its face, fairly absurd, uh, kind of just across the board. And instead that life is a continuous, you know, desiring machines connecting to partial objects and then shitloads of those happening over time. And that's where we start to find the relation of productions within that. Uh, it's a really great paragraph sort of describing sort of the base level of, uh, their semiotics, which I really, really, really like, but, uh, it's also really important here because they will be getting into this, uh, We need to be talking also about the second thing they talk about, which is the non-familial experience that the child is having. Uh, They will get into this all through chapter three so very, very much. Uh, But they'll be talking about alliances versus familial. Uh, And the way that uh, Oedipus and a lot of psychoanalysis places us is that all of our relations to the world is through family. starts with family, is all family. Their argument is actually from birth. Sure, there's family around. Like the, the kid, it's not like the kid doesn't deal with his family. That's dumb too. The parents are there, but it's also that he's having non-familial relations very quickly. Uh, he's, uh, you know, playing with the dog. He's throwing a ball. He's knocking down blocks. Uh, my kid builds blocks, calls them monsters, and kicks them down. It's great, uh, and that is not family related. I'm not. Daddy is not the monster. Mommy is not the one kicking down. <laughs>
1: Are you sure I, of that?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, if do I want to psychoanalyze my own kid? Yeah. Yesterday he was making uh, with brown play doh. He was making. Uh, he was trying to make poops, and he kept turning them into worms because he was rolling them too much. This is this is my child. I'm sure that there's some wonderful psychoanalytic Oedipal problem there, but uh, it is it is a non. Familial relation. He's he's playing with things. He's seeing how the world works and how the world pushes back. It's really fascinating. I love this.
1: And and there's there's this. Uh... Say that
0: say that one more time, PT.
1: I just said you're a dad.
0: <laughs> I, I I am. It's it's a really it's a really strange, unique experience to kind of watch uh, a human exist from the very beginning. Uh, and especially it's been as I've been reading Antigone now this now the second time a lot of these changes are happening and it's really easy for me to draw direct lines and be like, Oh shit, that is kind of how this works for him and how he sees things. And it's really, uh, it, it just, it feel, it, it feels a lot more spot on than a lot of the under ways that things are that we're born with the idea of mommy, daddy, that we have these things, everything's related to my first interaction with my mom or my dad. And that is, and it's like, it ah, doesn't, doesn't fit right with at least my personal experience. No, he does not actually play with shit freak. It is, uh, he thinks, uh, uh Play-Doh shaped like poop. Uh, like the poop emoji sort of, uh, is hilarious. And it makes him smile. It's I uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's because he sees me pick up poop from the dog out in the backyard and he helps me with that. And so he's trying to make poop too. So I'll spend time with him. I don't know. It's a kids are weird. All of this shit's weird. There's no way to tell what is really happening. Um,
1: But it's also his first form of production. There we go. It's the externalization of his desire in the form of poop. So like, you know, he's being an artist at the poop making now.
0: There we go. Except so, they keep okay. turning into worms. That's like, the problem.
1: Yeah, 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 but like that's the thing, you know. And and, and and in the text, it's really important to point that out for people who was going to be like working with Deleuze and Guattari Stott later on, or you know, just for your comprehension. They say at one point, a partial object is not representative, even though it's admittedly it admittedly serves as a basis of relation and as a means of assigning agents, a place, and a function. So, the object is not the representation. You know and it's re- not representative it is what it is and it's there and it function and it does is things um but it you can att- attribute a signification to this object you can attribute um like a, a, like either like what they say like a place or a function but they they cannot be reduced to that so this this kind of thought in Deleuze and qua will give rise to like non-representational theory later on so that's that's an interest that's an important part of um, their criticism that we cannot you know um, reduce reality to codes or to representation we need to see the processes of material and flux as they are going
0: and it's uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, quote that they're talking about there is from uh, the Illustrated man if you haven't read it uh, phenomenal. Uh, sort of collection of short stories that also I could say probably is another example of uh, tales that on their own uh, you would not necessarily connect but thanks to the connection of the whole they all take on a deeper meaning Uh, so I'm sure that is part of the reason they did that for sure but uh there's a specific I'm trying to uh, bring it up there's a specific one of the children who are playing I'm trying to remember uh god i'm gonna to have to go back i'm gonna to try to find it because it's there's a bunch of little stories in there um i think it's the first one which is their sci-fi uh thing uh where they basically are doing these uh studies on children uh in a place where any um, any environment that can be imagined or used for the children can be can be generated uh i'm gonna read here we go uh Uh, From Wikipedia, parents in a futuristic society worry about their children's mental health when their new virtual reality nursery, which can create any environment the children can imagine, continually projects the African veldt, populated by lions feasting on carcasses. A child child psychologist suggests the automated house is not a good place for children's development, nor the parents, and insists they disable the automation and take a vacation to become more self-sufficient. Children are not pleased with the decision, but later agree to it. The children then trap their parents in the nursery, where they become prey to the lions. They later have lunch on the veldt with the child psychologist. They then see the lions feasting, but do not recognize what happened. Uh, the The book is very much in about sort of how uh, children play with their fantasies. It's a really dark story, really solid. Uh, yeah, the veldt. It's a really, really good reading, so worth it. Uh, the whole book is illustrated a wonderful book. Um, All right, I will continue. It is not a question of denying the vital importance of parents or the love attachment of children to their mothers and fathers. It is a question of knowing what the place and the function of parents are within desiring production, rather than doing the opposite and forcing the entire interplay of desiring machines to fit within the restricted code of Oedipus. How does the child first come to define the places and the functions that the parents are going to occupy as special agents closely related to other agents. From the very beginning, Oedipus exists in one form and one form only, open in all directions to a social field, to a field of production directly invested by libido. It would seem obvious that parents indeed make their appearance on the recording surface of desiring production, but this is in fact the crux of the entire Oedipal problem. What are the precise forces that cause the Oedipal triangulation to close up? Under what conditions does this triangulation divert desire so that it flows across a surface within a narrow channel that is not a natural conformation of this surface? How does it form a type of inscription for experiences and the workings of mechanisms that extend far beyond it in every direction? It is in this sense, in this sense only, that the child relates the breast as a partial object to the person of his mother and constantly watches the expression on his mother's face. The word relate, in this case, does not designate a natural, productive relationship, but rather a relation, in the sense of a report or an account, an inscription within the overall process of inscription, within the Newman. From his very earliest infancy, the child has a wide-ranging life of desire, a whole set of non-familial relations, with the objects and the machines of desire. that is not related to the parents, from the point of view of immediate production, but that is ascribed to them, with either love or hatred, from the point of view of the recording of the process, and in accordance with the very special conditions of this recording, including the effect of these conditions upon the process itself, the feedback. Continues the same critique we've been talking about, a slightly different edge to this, where they say, uh, so if we have these relations from early on, at what point does it become everything, if, if this is the relations early on, a, a child has relations with the mother, has it with the father, sees how the mother and father interact, all these things, these these happen. This triangulation is a thing that exists. However, why do these relations, why does this spread out and cover all of things that exist in the child's life forever? And there's no real answer for that. To them, they just simply say, look, it's because these things are related as partial objects. The the, the child has them as relations, not as uh, an, a full object, as signifiers that play inside of that. I think this is presents kind
3: of an interesting uh, evolution from his, Deleuze specifically has a uh, position he takes up in empiricism and subjectivity that always kind of bothered me. Uh, in his designation between like children and adults, he would kind of say like, children hadn't like developed the necessary associations and skills and faculties to like actively participate in the social world whereas here he's gonna say like from the very beginning that everybody infants children are immersed in desiring production which i think is a much more sensible position to hold one of my major complaints about stuff like uh, Hegelian dialectics is like any kind of philosophy that doesn't account for the fact that like a two-year-old or a three-year-old is having real human experiences and re- require them to be a genius can't really apply can it
0: this is uh, one of the one of the many issues I've also had um, because it it tends to have a almost transcendent uh, quality to it where you're saying, well, everything comes back to Oedipus. And it's like, cool, but how does that start? It's not just like a child has no understanding of the world except for mommy and daddy until they become of social age, which is the joke they were making before. Like, why does it suddenly become a thing? And it's like, no, it's there's always stuff happening. Like a kid's always experiencing shit. It's a, it's a really solid uh, sort of takedown of Oedipus. It's when it's really thorough and nice and simple. We get the question uh, from Vassalizer, what is this process of inscription? Uh, So, uh, experiences are inscribed, written, recorded on the BWO. It's part of the second second of the passive syntheses. It's part of the process of the unconscious, the machinic nature of things. This wording, this inscription uh, is, uh, you know, these signs get, uh, they use the word inscription, generally speaking, in reference to family, And in reference to kind of uh, the earth and the sort of foundational things, Uh, they they have some very specific words they use. And again, I'm pretty sure a lot of that is just the translator. Uh, But this inscription is basically all of the different recordings of sensation that you've experienced in your entire life.
3: Words they they use a a, my French is terrible. Enregistrement.
1: Enregistrement.
3: Enregistrement. Uh, for inscription or recording and like that's a word that is literally used to mean like uh save on like a computer or uh like an audio recording also like the the inscription is like the like like the proof of the process like the 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 product itself the 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 material of it the the the
0: uh remainder recording the recording of a thing happening, the the essence in memory of a and, thing happening.
1: And if you want, like in Quebec, for example, we when we say enregistrement, uh, it's like it's like a and because we we've kept uh, a lot of the old French parlance and the way that we use words. And in in the old older times, uh, when they would say enregistrement, would be your official documents. So like when when I talk about my driving permit, I talk about my enregistrement which is like me being recorded according to the law. So there's 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 this also, you know, there's the popular um, content of the term enregistrement, which says it's you and the recording of the symbolic order.
0: And uh, their use of Newman here is uh, a, a desire, again, desire is a shit word for for all of this for a ton of reasons. We're just using it because that's in the translation. The The process of libidinal energy, the the fount of whatever you want to call it—passions, desire, all of that—it goes through changes. It's libidinal, Newman, and uh, voluptus. Newman is the recording energy; it's the second step, and it's part of the three syntheses. The the use of uh, uh, Newman is very particular uh, here, so it's, it has to do with that. So, and it's we'll, we'll be getting to all of those things more uh, for sure. But that's kind of where this sits at. All right, uh, let's uh, dive to the next one. It is amid partial objects and within the non-familial relations of desiring production that the child lives his life and ponders what it means to live, even though the question must be related to his parents, and the only possible tentative answer must be sought in family relations. Quote, I remember that ever since I was eight years old, and even before that, I always wondered who I was, what I was, why I was alive. I remember that at the age of six, on the house on the boulevard de Blancard...
1: La Blancard in Marseille.
0: Number 29, to be precise. Just as I was eating my afternoon snack, a chocolate bar that a certain woman known as my mother gave me, I asked myself what it meant to exist, to be alive, what it meant to be conscious of oneself breathing Sorry, I really like that. And I remember that I wanted to inhale myself in order to prove that I was alive and to see if I liked being alive. And if so, why? Says Antonin Artaud. That is the crucial point. A question occurs to the child that will perhaps be related to the woman known as mommy, but that is not formulated in terms of her, but rather produced within the interplay of desiring machines at the level, for example, of the air mouth machine or the tasting machine. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to breathe? What am I? What sort of thing is this breathing machine on my body without organs? Very self-explanatory, nice uh, paragraph. I really love uh, the use of Artaud here. Uh, very often I get confused by it, but sometimes there's just a passage that just hits home really hard. I really like it. Um, again, uh, my, my kid, uh, he, he obviously has to relate everything because he deals with mommy, daddy. So kind of his understanding of his place in the world is going to be in relation to us because especially during COVID, he doesn't have a lot of options. He sees a child maybe every week on the playground. There's no school. There's no one's getting together. Uh, especially now, he will have a lot of relations that he'll see in terms of, uh, sort of, not in terms of mommy and daddy, but like because of my involvement, I'm around. But that's not really why he's doing it or how it works. It's just, you know, the, the nature of it. It's related to us. The relations are because we're around and part of that process. Uh, man, COVID's going to fuck kids up. <sighs> Next paragraph.
1: Imagine how the Middle Ages were fucking kids up when they were like confined to the home and never going to the forest because it was evil. I don't think it's that different, you know. They're gonna evolve and they're gonna adapt, but uh, there's been dire situations through history. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that it w- it's still within COVID, they're actually in a good spot.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, it's tough to watch. I, he he calls me his best friend, and it's one of those things that when you're a dad, is like. Uh, you have this moment of like oh that's so, so oh god that's the saddest thing I've ever heard like it's just this awful feeling uh, yeah and time. it's
1: even worse if you're a Zizek and you say that you need to reestablish authority between the dad and the child and not to have this alliance of friendships but your kid is connecting through alliance with you you know which is great
0: well it's a good thing I don't take parenting advice and so on and so on and so on uh, I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and continue to the next paragraph uh, The child is a metaphysical being. As in the case of the Cartesian cogito, parents have nothing to do with these questions, and we are guilty of an error when we confuse the fact that this question is related to the parents in the sense of being recounted or communicated to them with the notion that it is related to them in the sense of a fundamental connection with them. By boxing the life of a child up within the Oedipus complex, by making familial relations the universal mediation of childhood, We cannot help but fail to understand the production of the unconscious itself and the collective mechanisms that have an immediate bearing on the unconscious, in particular, the entire interplay between primal psychic repression, the desiring machines, and the body without organs. Four, the unconscious is an orphan, and produces itself within the identity of nature and man. The auto-production of the unconscious suddenly became evident when the subject of the Cartesian cogito realized that it had no parents when the socialist thinker discovered the unity of man and nature within the process of production and when the cycle discovers its independence from an indefinite parental regression. To quote Artaud once again, I got no pappy mummy. I hope I don't have to explain much of that. I love some of these paragraphs. Just nail it. Now I'm going to continue. And What's
1: really really interesting is like rereading the first part of this book, because you know, we're, we, we, we've done the whole thing and we came back. Everything in those parts is way more apparent to at least some of us. And it makes sense now. And the first time that I was reading it, I was just like, oh, I don't get everything. But I think that the explanations that we're giving right now are helping understand because it, we're linking this to the rest of the, uh, the book.
0: Yeah, and, and as we describe all of this, and you'll see later, one of the big things to be doing is realizing they're talking uh, here about very specific machinic things. I'm not saying this is allegory. However, it also sort of is allegory, as they talk and soon begin talking about how we exist within a society. So this sort of nature of things of the unconscious is not something that applies only here. There are some real interesting ways to talk about uh, these things, especially in the multiplicity. To the next paragraph, though. It's It's a decent one. We have seen how a confusion arose between the two meanings of process, process as the metaphysical production of the demoniacal within nature, and process as social production of desiring machines within history. Neither social relations nor metaphysical relations constitute an afterward or beyond. The role of such relations must be recognized in all psychopathological processes, and their importance will be all the greater when we are dealing with psychotic syndromes that would appear to be the most animal-like and the most desocialized. It is in the child's very first days of life, in the most elementary behavior patterns of the suckling babe, that these relations with partial objects, with the agents of production, with the factors of anti-production are woven in accordance with the laws of desiring production as a whole. By failing from the beginning to see what the precise nature of this desiring production is and how, under what conditions, and in response to what pressures, the edipal triangulation plays a role in the recording of the process, we find ourselves trapped in the net of a diffuse, generalized Oedipalism that radically distorts the life of the child in his later development, the neurotic and psychotic problems of the adult and sexuality as a whole. Let us keep D.H. Lawrence's reaction to psychoanalysis in mind and never forget it. In Lawrence's case, at least, his reservations with regard to psychoanalysis did not stem from terror at having discovered what real sexuality was, but he had the impression, the purely instinctive impression, that psychoanalysis was shutting up shutting sexuality up in a bizarre sort of box painted with bourgeois motifs in a kind of rather repugnant artificial triangle, thereby stifling the whole of sexuality as production of desire, so as to recast it along entirely different lines. Making of it a dirty little secret, the dirty little family secret, a private theater rather than the fantastic factory of nature and production. Lawrence had the impression that sexuality possessed more power and more potentiality than that. And though psychoanalysis may perhaps have managed to disinfect the dirty little secret, the dreary dirty little secret of Oedipus, the modern tyrant, benefited very little from having been thus disinfected. Again, they're keeping in line with that generalized critique. Uh, now they're applying it very directly and talking about how doing so, edipalizing things, pushing in this direction actually itself is ultimately what causes these problems. And this triangulation role in the recording process traps desire. And it, uh, their use of diffuse here I really like because, again, uh, when we talk about Oedip- Oedipus uh, in common parlance for the last hundred some years, Uh, The wording used is very specific, and it's acting as if Oedipus is this very concretized, specific thing, when in reality, because it wraps up so many ideas and it's such a large, diffuse concept that is very impossible to grab and is not directly attached to anything, that nature of it is able to trap so much more. And it's able to distort our lives in a child's life in extraordinary ways because of that diffuse nature.
1: And, you know, they say this. there's this one little line when they talk about the dirty little secret, the dirty little family secret, the private theater rather than the fantastic factory of nature and production. Nature with a capitalized N and production with the capitalized P. Um, so it comes down to their old ontology. You know, their ontology is nature and production. That is the primordial, primordial forces. And, you know, the... To recast this into a familiarism is to, um, you know, uh, confuse the discourse with those machines that are producing producing the conditions of the discourse. And that the discourse is not representing what reality is in its processes. I think just this, if you want to like, understand the ontology of Deleuze and Guattari and put it in relation to, you know, either... Um, the discourses of capitalism, the discourses of psychoanalysis, um, you you have it all there.
0: And it's this last little bit. I really like the phrasing of it when they say, uh, basically, I want to paraphrase, uh, you've taken all of the extraordinary things that are happening inside of the unconscious with relations and sexuality, symbolism, semiotics, desires, connections, nature, production, and you're turning it into this dirty little secret, this thing that we're supposed to hide inside of this tiny little dark corner theater you know, that exists in, if our unconscious has a back area with curtains, that's the that we're on the other side of that. Like it's this is supposed to be going back there. It's very private, very special, but it's not. There's a, there's so much beauty and potentiality, generally speaking, in all of our desires and the way that nature and production work. It's really amazing. And yes, the socialist thinker they name in this is, I believe, it's Marx because what Marx did is basically start breaking apart society into production and the flows of production, discussing how those work. And I think Deleuze basically saw his work with this as just the logical extension of understanding that, well, if society is all production, why the fuck isn't everything? All right, uh, I will move to the next paragraph. Uh, I had a
3: question. Go ahead. Kind of, uh, what what do they mean when they're talking about the uh production of the demoniacal within nature they've used that a couple of times throughout chapter 1 without really elaborating on it
0: so de- demoniacal is i, I cuz i spent some time like diving into this and trying to figure out what it, what this is in reference to and so there's not a ton deleuze is not this is not a thing that they talk about or or define out um I think it is uh, what we might call animalistic drives—drives uh, drives with no stop, drives that just continue. The way that they—they uh, they use it in reference a little bit towards how the body without organs uh, separates us from our base uh, animal instincts, because it breaks desiring machines and enables us to connect to more things. Uh, in Deleuze A to Z, when he talks about animals, he uses the term uh, as well. So there's a when they talk about sort of uh, demonic as a thing. Uh, it tends to be used kind of in that direction. Um, it's uh, they they refer to demonic animals uh, in in the Oedipal animals, and they talk through that in a thousand plateaus, I believe. Roger, you're in the room.
1: Yeah, I've I've dwelled upon this because there's the demonic and the uh, what's the other word? Um, a diamond, D A. E M O N, which is different. And I, I remember like looking over this, but like I never found a, an answer. But um Yeah, I don't I I I I will say I don't know. I don't say this often, but this I yeah, so
0: the the first animal is Oedipal. the second is I think Jungian or archetypical, and the third is demonic. Uh like this is it's a really great question. I don't have an answer at all. It's a really strange usage of the word, and I mean it's even awkward for me to say if you couldn't tell as I was saying it, like like demoniac. Um, it's awful. Okay.
1: I'm into I'm into uh Jean-Sébastien Laberge, which is a master from 2015. It's in French. Uh I just typed it out. And what they're saying is Deleuze associate the disjunctive sentences to diabolical or the de- demoniac or to the antichrist. At different spots into uh, difference in repetition, so we would need to go into uh, difference in repetition and uh, LS. Which which one is LS?
0: Logic of sense.
1: Logic of sense. Yes, exactly. So they give. A, I will put this into. This is the French version. Sorry for. So you have the M A thesis there with the reference, but uh, to go further, you know, we would probably something say something wrong so I would uh, I would abstain from that
0: uh, yeah we're not I don't I think uh, we're gonna actually talk about this Ben we'll come back because that's a really phenomenal question uh, they don't use the word uh, they use the word demonic one time in all of logic and sense so it's I don't know what the fuck they are referencing so we'll dig into that uh, uh, sorry to throw this on at the
3: end is that at all related to when they're talking earlier in chapter one about uh I think think it's uh malone but it might be malloy when they're talking about a diabolical machine being created beneath the surface yeah it's one of the becketts but i couldn't remember if it was malone malloy or i I think it's i
0: i think it's malloy um and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to spend time because it's the, the references are really fascinating and interesting and odd. Um, the, they, they reference in anti So the only times I've found them really using this is, uh, in anti where they talk about this, there's an element they call the demoniacal element in nature or within the heart of the earth, the, that, uh, is part of this process and, they, ne- I, I can't find them going into it at all. Guadari doesn't. So this is a Delusian thing. Guattery never even goes near this. So it's, I need. I'm gonna have to spend time. We'll figure it out. Thank you. Three times they use it in the entire book. They never use it again after this. So that that's important, obviously. God damn it! It's gonna be a waste of my time. But we'll figure it out. Um, I'm gonna read the last paragraph, and then we'll have a short discussion because we actually burned through this far faster than I thought we would. It is possible that, by taking the path it has, psychoanalysis is reviving an age-old tendency to humble us, demean us, to make us feel guilty. Foucault has noted that the relationship between madness and the family can be traced back in large part to a development that affected the whole of bourgeois society in the 19th century. The family was entrusted with functions that became the measuring rod of the responsibility of its members and their possible guilt. Insofar as psychoanalysis cloaks insanity in the mantle of a parental complex and regards the patterns of self-punishment resulting from Oedipus as a confession of guilt. Its theories are not at all radical or innovative. On the contrary, it is completing the task begun by 19th century psychology, namely, to develop a moralized, familial discourse of mental pathology, linking madness to the half-real, half-imaginary dialectic of the family, deciphering within it the unending attempt to murder the father, the dull thud of instincts hammering at the solidity of the family as an institution and at its most archaic symbols. That's a good use of Foucault there. Hence, instead of participating in an undertaking that will bring about genuine liberation, psychoanalysis is taking part in the work of bourgeois repression at its most far-reaching level, that is to say, keeping European humanity harnessed to the yoke of daddy-mommy and making no effort to do away with this problem once and for all. Is it
2: are they are they actually insinuating that <laughs> the nineteenth century bourgeois were were technically the most genius people alive?
0: <laughs> it, I, I think uh, I, I don't think necessarily they're doing that. I think they're they're referring back to uh, Foucault's madness, uh, where he does sort of go back in time and talk through how. Family and madness, and the shifting over time that happened, uh, as they quote here, uh, the parental complex that came out of it. I think it's a it's a more mocking tone than necessarily yeah. here. Yeah,
1: and and you know if we can go into the political aspect of it, um, you will see in this book they will they will conflate um, psychoanalysis as an apparatus of the assemblage or desire machine of capitalism. So basically, you know, it's a domain of political economy of the libidinal energy, uh, which is doing the political economy, same as capitalism does. So basically what they're saying here is that um, psychoanalysis becomes the little cop of the bourgeois. It becomes the little domain of, you know, uh, controlling desire and fixing people so they can actually function into this bigger domain of capitalism. So basically, they're just taking the role of this this capitalist uh, machine into the, 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 the a more carceral and form uh, on the libido or you know on desire.
4: Yeah,
2: but are I... they insinuating? Oh, sorry. No, 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 go, no, ahead. No, go, go. Are they insinuating that the nineteenth century bourgeois were, were on the verge of of of, of socialist break, break breakthrough? I mean, this no, is how, how, how... conclusions to take, but.
0: No, how I read it is, uh, is uh, I don't want to say the opposite of that because it's it's not really, but it, it to me it it kind of feels the opposite, where the idealism that Freud absolutely have for that period of development, and I would say, I mean even modern American conservatives do the the general when is the best time to have been a family? Well, it's that classic period. Right now it's the 1950s, but it, you know back then it was the 1850s basically, um, and their lionization and adulation that they have for that entire group that's like what they're mocking here is like this uh the the quote specifically uh the family at that time was entrusted with functions that became the measuring rod of the responsibility of its members and their possible guilt uh the way that families began to function at that point because of the bourgeois nature of things was not any longer everyone kind of contributed to the household and worked but instead uh as they say Everyone had functions and the requirement of these functions, because they were primarily social in nature, it's the nature of the bourgeois, um, the guilt and shittiness and how you did those things and the passive aggressive sort of back and forth psycho bullshit games, um, that thing started to exist then. And so it's, again, I'm not a super good Foucault reader. I've only been yeah, getting into maybe. it thanks to the survey. Okay.
1: I, can, I can do this. Um you know, and it's the passage from the reason of the state to the the, the art of the governmentality for you know the the more liberal um, understanding that passes from you know the arist uh, aristocrats to the bourgeois. So it's it's a new episteme that is being like implemented there, and so basically you don't have those 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 essences given by God or by divinity. You know, now it's function. So basically, you're you're entering to into this. This this wording and, uh, and this world of capitalism that is made outside of the sacral um, nature of, you know, the king, the sovereign, and how you're part of this body and to this all. Now everything is like crumbling down and being reorganized through the logic of capitalism. So basically, even the family is being organized towards this logic instead of like a, pre, a place of sacrality.
0: So, Basically, a lot of this psychoanalysis was founded, Freud, for example, on the heels of that as they went, hey, this is starting to break apart. How do we fix it and get it back to this thing we loved? This was so great, basically. Um, And instead of breaking down a whole bunch of things about that, basically, they're trying to replicate and get back to that. Uh, And this is, they talk about it a little bit earlier. This is not the analyst who sits there going, tell me about your design machines, but it's demanding that you uh, basically uh, be Oedipalized and they don't even know where it all started. It started here. This is kind of them ending that point.
1: Um, I would like to go back to the demonic. In difference in repetition, they say something. I've posted the quote in French, but they say, I will, I will translate as I go. Uh, they say, because it, it's, it, it's about the university of being, they say it is not being that is uh, shared according to the exigencies of representation, but all things that are being distributed in it uh, into the university of the simple presence of the one. This is my shitty translation. And they will say, um, this kind of distribution is demoniac instead of divine. Because of the particularities of demons, it's to operate into the intervals between the fields of actions of gods um, it's about jumping over the barriers or the frontiers which obscure obscurcise the properties uh, the The chorus of Oedipus will scream and uh, which demon has jumped higher um, yeah so what, what they're saying is that um the distribution is is demoniac it, when it comes down to the difference. So the differentiation is, is a is a demonic way uh, because it it escaped the divinity. And you know they they will talk about the simulacrum also as being a form of of, of the demoniac because you know it's it's not the real. It's not the, it's not linked to the divine. So uh, this is how they explain this into difference in repetition. So if we can fold this back into what we've read earlier,
0: this is more of that thousand plateaus sorcery shit, isn't it? Yeah. God, <laughs> God damn it.
1: But it makes sense because you know it, it either the there's the equivocity of beings or the uh, university of being. It, it's really it, it takes everything into a different manner. So. Uh, difference is something that escapes essences, so basically, it's something that needs to be avoided and corrected to actually bring it back to being. But into university of being, differences is working. You know, it just it just produces the real. So uh, this kind of uh, understanding would be like a more demonic kind of understanding of the world that you know we we grow through
0: differentiation all right uh so with that wonderful digression into the demoniacal which will never come up again in the rest of this reading so i'm glad we got that out of the way um do you have any questions any thoughts anyone jump in now's the time i i'm happy to sit here in awkward silence and ruin everyone's time uh, until someone talks so please someone should jump in good maybe nothing it's a great chapter again um this the way that this book is written. Um, I'm seeing it around this time far more clearly. Is the uh, the first paragraph uh, is the first section is the first chapter is the entire book. I like, I don't know how else to describe it, but it is recursive into itself. It it gets the point across, uh, and it's uh, we're now we're now at the end of the first section, and everything we've discussed here. This is the entire premise of the book. This is all of it. And then what we're going to do basically next for the next three chapters is break down all of this into its very, very specific pieces. Uh, it's a really amazingly written that way. I'm a big fan. All right.
1: Well, yeah. I'm I'm glad that I came back today. That was kind of fun. And that was kind of clear too, you know,
0: that was a really good timing. I will tell you because uh, it's a, uh, uh this was very helpful uh one thing at some point i want to go back and uh when we go through and we start talking about some of the translations they have and when they use it and i didn't want to abuse you too much uh, because you're my french counterpart but uh, a handful of times they use uh, some terms again inside of this that i really I wonder if it's actually what they intended or if it came across. Like, I keep saying things like, this feels like the translator, uh, and there's a few times where that's the case. Inscription, for example, the different usage of these things. Uh, Heil, which is a thing that is not a thing. Like, it's not a word people use anymore. I had to look it up.
1: Yeah, but it's eilomorphic. It comes down to... uh, Oh, yeah, that that, that word. I use that
0: word all the time. Thank you
1: yeah yeah it's this yeah. it's how, how you pass intent or like you know uh abstract forms into the material
0: yeah no i I use that word all the time i was I was playing dota yesterday and I used it like six times totally get it didn't understand
4: Ahem. yeah um
1: but that's the thing uh on this, this chapter, uh, I was just following the English. I didn't look into the French. But I remember that when we did it the first time, there was a lot of discrepancies between the French and the English. And I was pointing them out at the beginning. Uh, so there is some for sure. and uh,
3: But...
0: I, mean, you know, I, I think something. we got the points all came through. I think discrepancies matter less. Uh, I'm learning as we go through; they're important, but they they matter a lot less when you're talking, trying to just get the idea across. I think. So. Oh, to-
1: totally. But if you're really anal about things, uh, they make a clear difference. And sometimes, you know, the French word—it's like, for example, you know—I'm not going to go deep in this, but assemblage. Now, arrangement in English would make more sense to refer to agencement or desiring machines so there would be arrangements not assemblages because assemblages is making it more like static but arrangement would be you know this kind of clunky thing that is like falling apart all the time and that makes sense that's really this the french sense of it so the desiring machine it's a little machine, but it's a little clunky machine that keeps breaking down, making stuff, you know, losing parts and like picking them back up. It's kind of dirty. It's not really working, but it's trying, you know. But that's Love that's it. the thing. That's the thing. Th- those little concepts. It's uh, sometimes you need to go to old French to understand it, and it's uh, even for me, like as a French native speaker and a French reader, sometimes I, I lose all of this, and it takes me like few days weeks months years to like understand it completely
0: well uh with that though i'm going to uh uh, cancel stop the recording in the stream thank all of you for joining us uh we will be continuing next week as we move into chapter two which is uh breaking a lot of shit down we've talked about so far this is uh it's a good thing you're paying attention because this is where it starts to get crazy so thank you guys uh so very much